Well, we have just started up in a new series that we're calling Real Change, Getting to the Heart of It. And now, no doubt, every one of us has things in our life that we wish were different, that we wish were not there, that we wish didn't look the way that they did, that things that we wish were in our lives that we could cultivate. And so we want to dig into scripture to figure out how to accomplish that, how to really see real change in our life. Because for some of us, it's been years and years that we've wanted to see that change, and yet it doesn't seem to happen. We realize part of it is, in fact, all of it is directed at our heart. So all of us go into the doctor, and the doctor asks us questions, and we assess where we're at. So let's do a little heart check right now here this morning. Okay, I'm going to ask you a couple questions, and in your heart, kind of decide where you're at with this. Do you find yourself becoming more irritated or more at peace lately? Do you find yourself cultivating more contentment or getting more discontent in the last few weeks, months, maybe a year? How about this? Do you find yourself more irritable, more frustrated, or do you find yourself more joyful, more at peace? Maybe one last question. If you could just change that one thing, if this fill in the blank would just change, then everything would be okay. Go ahead and hold that, whatever that is that you put in the blank, and let's turn to Philippians chapter 4 and talk a little bit about what Paul has to say about contentment. Philippians chapter 4, and I'm going to start in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, when we hear rejoice, we think of an interior contentment, a joy, a delight in God. And it is that, but it's more than that. It's an expression, an expressive life. In fact, the people that would have first read this in Philippi would have understand this as a public celebration. They would have times all throughout the year where they would have these events. They would have these games. They would have these shows that would honor and celebrate their gods. Right? When they heard rejoice in the Lord, the first thing that would come to their mind would be rejoice in Caesar. And there would be all of these festivities that they would gather around to have, join and have fun celebrating Caesar. Now, for us, Paul says to rejoice in the Lord, but he's not referring to Caesar, is he? It's interesting that he doesn't say rejoice in circumstances, because there are things that definitely we can rejoice in. There are circumstances that help us out. But as we study through Philippians today, and we're on a journey to uncover what this contentment really looks like, I'm going to give you six C's. Six words, start with the letter C, that are there trying their best to rob you of your contentment. They want to come in and pillage and steal and take any contentment that you might try to accomplish. The first C on that list is circumstances. Circumstances can rob you of your contentment. Can I get an amen? Okay, so me and three people, right? We, sometimes we have difficult things that happen in life and it seems like it just sucks the contentment right out of our life. Well, before we move any farther, let's just put ourselves in Paul's shoes for just a second. As he writes this, Paul has been facing challenges, not for days, not for weeks, for years. In fact, as the book starts out in uh, chapter 1, verse 28, he speaks of this outside opposition. He's continued to have all these attacks from outside the church that come at him. Not only that, 
just two verses earlier in chapter 4, we'll find that there's disputes happening within the church, with this church that he loves. In the first chapter, verse uh, 13, tells us that he's in prison. He's in jail. He's, he's being put on trial for, tr- for treason because he's following Jesus. If somebody knew difficult circumstances, it would be Paul. And yet, what's Paul tell us? To rejoice. Hmm. There's an author. His name's Henry Cloud. He's a Christian. He wrote a book on happiness. And he looked at a bunch of studies that researchers had done. And one of them that he started to unpack, researchers found that of all the happiness people would gain or achieve in life, only 10% of their happiness, their joy, would be contributed to circumstances. He'd said that they found that there would always be a bump in their joy and their happiness and their contentment, but that bump would always come back down. Where it came back down to, he called a set point. So maybe they'd get a new job, they'd get a new house, they'd get whatever, and that would produce some joy, some happiness, some contentment, but it wouldn't last. It would always drop back down to that baseline level of contentment. What's he finding there? He's finding that my contentment can't be found out there. My contentment has to do with something in here. That's what we want to continue to dive into. So many people think contentment is found in the what, but it's not. It's found in the who. And that's what Paul is telling us right here. Rejoice in the Lord. But so many people just say, if, if I would just have this, then I would be happy. When this happens, then I'll find contentment. It's all circumstantial contentment, but the thing he's showing us is that that's not where, where contentment is found. In fact, he says, I will say it again, rejoice. I'll say it again, rejoice. I'll say it again, rejoice. It's like he's got it on this continued loop. The thing he's trying to convey through this is I will live a life of continual rejoicing. I almost get this picture of this three-year-old toddler trying to get their mom's attention and saying, mom, mommy, mom, mama, mom, 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 right? This loop to get your attention. It seems as though Paul is trying to repeat this over and over so that we realize he's talking about a rejoicing life all the time. But could it really be actually possible that we could continue to live a life of rejoicing no matter the circumstances? What do you think? Do you believe that? Maybe some of you in the room right now are saying, absolutely not. We'll continue on this journey. What if the situation you're in never changes? The circumstance that you're facing never changes. Does that mean that you will live an entire life without contentment? I've found that sometimes the most difficult seasons I've walked through are the times that God has grown me and stretched me and transformed me the most. Here's the reality. The difficult circumstance that you may be in may be because God wants to do something in you. God doesn't waste opportunities. In fact, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, even when circumstances don't go the way that you would have planned them or wish that they had. Jesus always gives us a reason to rejoice because of what we have in him. Maybe this is a prayer that you need to pray this week. Jesus, help me to find my satisfaction in you, right in the middle of this circumstance, of this situation. 
Verse 5, he goes on to say, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, the word reasonableness, the NASB translates that gentle spirit. The NIV translates that gentleness. So what's he talking about? You can't capture this word just in one word. There's a, a plethora of words that help give us a fullness of this. But you don't find a bunch of guys sitting around going, yeah, that's good, gentleness. I want to work on my gentleness. Would you hold my weights for a second while I go tickle a kitten with a feather, right? That's not really something that gets us super excited. So what's he talking about? When he's talking about gentleness, we can start looking at this word comprehensively in the Greek, and it shows us all sorts of things. He's talking about a gentle spirit, but he's also talking about a gracious spirit, a yielding spirit, a kind spirit, a forgiving spirit. Actually, if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and you look for this same word, you'll find it in Psalms chapter 86, verse 5. And this is what it says. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving. You know how the NASB translates it? For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. The word translated for this gentleness is ready to forgive. It's a posture. It's not that I'm just willing to extend forgiveness. It's that he's actually living in an active posture of forgiveness. There's a gracious spirit. There's a a grace-filled life that's been flowing through our God. And that's what he's talking about cultivating right here. It's a different kind of posture. And when people get this, they're a different kind of person, aren't they? Have you met these kind of people? There's a lightness to them. There's a joy to them. It's as though they actively live in a posture where they can interact with something deeper content within them that allows them to extend things that just don't make sense in this world. You can often see the condition of somebody's heart by the way that they respond when they have been wronged, when they've been hurt, or maybe when they don't see eye to eye with somebody else. But the reality is those that have found what Paul's talking about, something in Jesus, they can actually live differently. They can forgive because they understand how much they've been forgiven. They can actually be patient because God has been patient with them. Everyone knows God's been patient with Josh. So I can be patient. They can actually live gracious lives in a posture actively to do that because God extends grace constantly to them. And we don't get to pick and choose. In verse 5, he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. To everyone, not just who I want. Which leads us to the second C that will try to rob us of our contentment. That's conflict. Do you have anybody in your life right now that if I were to say their name, you would be like, your stomach would start to turn. You just think there's absolutely nothing good I can say about that person because there's nothing good about that person. You know what I'm talking about? Your friends won't even bring up their name. If somebody talks about it, they just say, we don't talk about Bruno or Steve or John or whoever it is, right? There's just this idea that I would, if I never saw them again, that would be too soon. It's as though they've sucked the contentment and delight and joy straight out of you. But do you realize you have an active participation within that? There's something you can do. In fact, Paul talks about this just two verses earlier. Chapter 4, verse 2. 
Go back and look what he says. He says, I entreat Iodia, as I and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. There's some kind of dispute that's going on in the church of Philippi, and these women have been actively involved with Paul in the ministry of the gospel. But something has taken place, and all of a sudden they're at odds. In fact, the way that Paul says this, it seems as though they're not even talking to one another. So what does he ask them to do? He asks them to agree. Now, agree in the uh, NASB, it may say live in harmony. The Greek word with this would mean to think the same, or maybe better said, to think on the same level. What Paul's trying to say is when I engage into this dispute, into this conflict, I come in on level ground. I don't use my position or my power to try to somehow get me on a different place with this person to force them into my way of thinking or my view. I don't try to usurp that I have more value than them. I actually show up in a way that I'm using my reasonableness, my gentleness. I'm actually showing up with a gracious spirit to try and engage the conflict that's taking place. He says, agree in the Lord. We're going to see this phrase, in the Lord, constantly today. I think this is the key. Some people think that this is because there was a theological debate that they had within the church, and that may be so, but I think it was something more than that. Because I know that if I enter into a dispute or a debate or some kind of conflict on my own strength, I'm going to come in with the wrong posture. I'm going to come in with the wrong attitude. and pretty sure I'm going to come in with the wrong words. So what I need in that moment is I need Jesus to help me in my posture. I need Jesus to help me in my words. I need Jesus to help me with my attitude. Someone once said, I don't have to attend every argument that I'm invited into. And it's true. Romans 12, 18 says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What's he saying there? He's saying not all disputes can be resolved in the way that you hope because you can't control the other person, but you can control yourself with, God, with God's help. You could actually enter in with the right posture. So let me just ask you right now, there's someone in your life that when you think of them, there just comes this discontentment. There's this unsettled thought. Maybe God's asking you at this point to go and ask for forgiveness, to apologize. Maybe he's leading you right now to think, I've got to go have a conversation. I've got to talk to someone. Maybe for some of you, he's saying, just let it go. Live with a gracious spirit. Just let it go. Maybe some of us this week need to pray this. Jesus Help me to love this person that is so hard to love because I don't have any love for them. I need your love to love them with. I can't do this on my own. Paul seems to think that it's just not worth living a life of conflict and discontentment with others. In fact, he goes on to say, the, this is no way to live. He says, the Lord is at hand, which means the Lord is near. He's coming back soon. Paul doesn't take sides in this dispute. He doesn't tell us much about the issue. He doesn't even tell them how to resolve it. But he is saying, hey, do something about it. 
This is no way to live. He continues on in verse 6, and he says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, I've constantly already seen Paul continues to use these big words. When I first got married, my wife and I decided that there were certain words that we would just call big words, and we would try not to use these words. It was words like always and never, right? Because once we entered that in the conversation, it just didn't seem to help much. Josh, you always do that. I would say, oh, that's a big word. Or you never take out the trash. That's a big word. I didn't this week or last week. I did the week before, though. So sometimes there's these big words. Paul continues to use these. In fact, in verse 4, he said, rejoice in the Lord always. And then the next verse, he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And now he comes in, do not be anxious about anything. I mean, Paul, come on. Aren't there some things that I can worry about? Aren't there some things that deserve a little bit of my time for worry? Are you like me? You worry about some of the dumbest things. About a year ago, we moved to a new home. It's a little old farm outside of town. It's something we were incredibly excited about. Didn't ever expect an opportunity like this. But one of the things about me is I love people. I get energized by people. And this church is great because there's a lot of people. So I get to spend my whole week with people. But the way that I recharge, the way that I re get re-energized is away from people. Put me on a desert island alone, and I'm a happy guy. And then I'm ready to re-engage with people. Some of you guys are like, not me at all. Put me around everybody, and I'm fired up. I'm energized. That's awesome. God makes all of us uniquely. This place has become a little bit of a re-energizing spot for me. I'm to be with people all week, and then I go back, and there's space and field around us. And I, I'm driving over the hill, and I see a part of the grass cut down around right by our house. You know what I start to think? oh no, there's going to be more people here. <laughs> They're going to build a house right there. That's where we look at the sunset. What am I going to do? None of this is in my control. I can't do anything about it. And in fact, that might not even be what's happening at all. I'm not a farmer. I have no clue what's happening in this season. But what I realize is I'm spending time worrying about these things. I've got to plant trees if there's a house going up there. I've got I to start doing this. I've got to start doing that. Who am I to try and control this? Something I can't control to try and worry about this. Who knows? God has given us incredible neighbors. Maybe he's putting one more great neighbor right there. Maybe this is somebody I'll end up thinking, this is a lifelong friend. And yet I want to spend the mental capacity and time to worry about things I just can't change or control. Some of us have other worries that are more serious than that. But here's the reality. Anxiety is this, and don't miss this. Anxiety is me internalizing my doubt that God is not big enough. That I can't trust God with this thing. That I don't know if God's going to show up for this, which ultimately leads us to another thing that tries to rob me of my contentment. Are you ready for this one? Write it down. It's control. And Brian talked about it last week. He told us about the two paths that we could choose. And in one path, we could choose that we would worship God, that we let God be God. And in that, there was a surrender. But there was another path. Remember that? It was the path that told me that I could choose to try and be my own God. We found out from that story, we're not very good 
at being God's, are we? If I'm living a worried life, an anxious life, that's a symptom of something deeper in my heart. It's an issue of control. And this is the reality. I can't have control and contentment at the same time. I can either hold contentment as I let go of control and let God take the reins and trust him. Or I can come over and try to control everything and manipulate everything. But I can't have both. I've got to choose. And that's why Paul says in this verse to pray about it. Because prayer is not doing nothing. Prayer is doing something, and it's powerful. Not doing something you can do, that's passivity. That's complacency, which is another C that will rob your contentment. I'm just complacent. I sit there and think, eh, didn't go my way. I'm going to do nothing then. I'm not going to experience contentment in that moment. But as I pray about it, God starts to do things both in me and around me. Prayer is letting go of our need for control and knowing that God is at work. There's a quote from Oswald Chambers that I've read over and over through the years, and the more I read it, the more powerful it becomes in my life. He says this, every time we pray, our horizon is altered. Our attitude to things is altered. Not just sometimes, but every time. And the amazing thing is that we don't pray more. Mm. Isn't that true? Every time we pray, God does something in us and through us and starts to show us how we can align with him. That's why he says in verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The literal picture that he's giving of guarding is soldiers marching around the walls of a city. God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus as we come to him in prayer. That shows me the enemy isn't from outside then, is it? The enemy is the warrior in me. So what's God asking us to do? Let go of control, to trust him. We just read it earlier in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 as a whole church. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard my hearts and, and minds, right? Colossians 3 says this, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Give over control. Here's the, the thing. My circumstances might not change. My health diagnosis from the doctor may not change. The other person may not change. But something starts to change in my heart. And that changes everything. Some of you are losing sleep over things. You're worrying about things. You're anxious about things. Maybe this is a prayer that you need to pray this week. God, I'm handing over control. I'm giving you the things that I'm tempted to worry about. Will you help me not to worry? Will you help me to trust you in this situation? He goes on to verse 8. Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace, there it is again, 
will be with you. He tells us to think about all these things. That's a lot of whatevers. We're finding all sorts of whatever things to think about. What's the, the little word for this, me, this think means to calculate, means to dwell on. But I could have read an opposite list of things to dwell on. He could have said this. Finally, brothers, whatever is untrue, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is unjust, whatever is scandalous, whatever is cheap, whatever is blameworthy, Dwell on these things. You find yourself at all through the week dwelling on those kind of things? Constant noise and chatter. We find ourselves scrolling through that list constantly, don't we? The messages are constantly at the door. But he says, at times, maybe we need to just turn off the noise and think about something different. As I read this this week, you know what I thought? Boy, from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep, I feel like I'm constantly allowing these noise messages into my life, and sometimes I just got to shut them off. It was amazing, even as I drove around in the quietness, how God would bring to mind things I was seeing and the ways that it would change and it would continue to impact my attitude and my thoughts. He says to dwell on these. Why? Dwell on these good things so that it shapes what we do, because the reality is each and every one of us are being shaped every day. If you go through existence, you're going to be shaped by something. And there is a line of lies out the door that wants to shape you daily. You don't have enough. You're not good enough. If you just had this, then that would be enough. It reminds me of the kid at the carnival. You remember going to the carnival as a kid? So excited, it'd roll into town, you'd show up, and there'd be the lights. You'd walk, you'd start to smell the smells of cotton candy, you'd get some cotton candy, you'd get a hot dog, you're chowing down, your hands are sticky from the cotton candy, you do a couple rides, and then you see that game. It looks so fun. If I just played that, that'd be a blast. So you go up, you spend five bucks, and you get three rings. Do you remember this? You think this will be easy. All I got to do is put a ring on that, and I get one of those prizes, and you throw it. Oh, bounces off. Another three, bounces off. Why, what's, what's the deal with those bottles? Why are those so hard to get rings on? Another five bucks, another three rings. Try it again. Another five bucks, another three rings. All I want is just that prize now, right? I get it. I actually get it. I get the ring on. I get the prize, and they give me this little cheap plastic prize. As I'm holding this prize... I look up at the wall, but there's better prizes. There's stuffed animals. And all I have to do is get five of these, and I can trade for one of those. So what do I do? Five more bucks. And I'm going after. I'm going after. I get the stuffed animal. But I'm not ready to walk away. Because at the very top of this ring game is a five-foot stuffed animal. And if I keep getting enough of these, I can get that. And if I get that... That would be enough. And I find myself, after a long day, finally walking home with this cheap five-foot stuffed animal that I'm dragging around. The seams are already ripping out off it. It has some kind of smell on it, and I'm starting to get a stomachache from the hot dogs and the cotton candy. These are the lies the world continues to sell us every day. If you just had this, that would be enough. But Paul's saying, hey, think differently. Think on what is just. Whenever you see those situations where something is taking place, you see somebody interact, you think that was well done. You're inviting that in. God, 
I want to be the kind of person that acts in that way. Would you help me, next time I have an opportunity, to interact with somebody to provide that kind of justice, that kind of justness for them? God, they just shared truth in an incredible way. Not only was it helpful, but the way that they shared that was so kind. It was so reasonable. It was so gracious in their spirit. God, would you help me to be the kind of person that sees your truth and that can share it in that way? As we see these things interact that are on this list, we start to put them into practice. Are we preaching yet? That's what God wants to start shape and developing into our lives. And then he gets to the key, I think, in chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation to be content. To know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and of hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So interesting. This is the first time we actually see the word content. And this is the only place in the whole New Testament that Paul uses this word for content. It's an interesting word. It means self-rule or self-sufficiency. In fact, it would have been a common word that the philosophers of that day or the Stoics would have used. It would mean that there's somehow a way that I can achieve. I can learn a way within myself to find happiness, to find contentment. It's no different than the self-help books that are out there right now. What's fascinating to me is that there is a $13.2 billion self-help industry that's estimated for this year. We're all trying to find ways to help from within ourselves to find this thing. But Paul's onto a key here. This contentment is tied to something else. It's actually tied to verse 13. Might be helpful to think of it like this. The English word for contentment comes from a Latin word, contentus. It means satisfied. That word comes from another Latin verb, contenter, which means it's a verb to, to hold in or to contain. Kind of sounds like another word, doesn't it? Container. It's as though there's a picture displayed for us that our heart is a container and what we fill it with and choose to fill it with will satisfy or dissatisfy our lives. But Paul is saying, Psst, there's a secret to the satisfaction. And he's talked about it all through the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 26, he says it this way, glory or rejoice in Christ. Philippians 3.1, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4.10, rejoice in the Lord. There's There's the key. That's what I anchor to. But it's not that alone. I participate. I join in. Do you see all the spots in this set of verses that he's saying, for I have learned. Verse 12, I know how. Again, he says, I know how. Then he goes at the end of that verse, say, I have learned. And then we get to verse 13. He says, I can do. It's me actively choosing to participate with what God's doing to change and join with him in what he wants to do in and through me and my life. It's a partnership. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I love the way J.B. Phillips puts it. 
I'm ready for anything through the strength of the one who lives within me. He goes on to verse 14. He says this, Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs. And once again, not that I am seeking the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. What's Paul talking about here? Paul has gone on a missions journey, and most of that journey he's been tent-making. He's been self-sufficient in this. But there was a point in his journey where this church, Philippi, decided they would support Paul. They would free him up, give him more time to invest in ministry, and they knew of his needs. And he's telling them, hey, I'm grateful that you have helped out. You were the first church that supported me in this, in your area. And he's grateful for that, but he's trying to tell them it's not about the gift. He realizes that part of contentment, part of the ways that I find that is through living a generous life as they've done. Part of the ways that I set my needs aside is to see the needs of others and join in generously meeting them. That's the way I combat needing the next version of this or the next this or the newest that. It's seeing the greater needs and joining in with God's doing there. Paul's saying, hey, I don't want you to seem like I'm ungrateful for the gift or that I'm trying to solicit more things or that I'm complaining about the needs that I have. It wasn't about the complaining, which that's actually another C. Another thing that will try to rob your joy if you let it, is complaining. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16 and 17 says this. Rejoice always. Boy, that seems familiar. Pray without ceasing. Think I've heard that. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What's the will of God for you? To give thanks in all circumstances. He doesn't say for all circumstances. He says, give thanks in all circumstances. Some things are tough. Some things are difficult, but there is always something that I can find to rejoice in God in, even in the midst of the worst circumstance. My family and I have been trying to grow in this practice. So different times, we'll go around the table, and instead of doing a traditional prayer before a meeting, we'll say, hey, everyone around the table say five things that you're grateful for. If the person before you says what you're going to say, you've got to find another one. You know what? As we go around that table, we can go around more and more and more because the things to find to be grateful for in God are endless. And then to close it out, my second grader will say, and the whole loose family said, amen. What if in your life you started to develop a practice of being grateful? I knew contentment was a challenge in my heart. So for the past three months, you know what I've been doing? I've decided that every day I'm going to audibly say something I'm grateful out loud, whether it's to someone else or just to myself. So Tom's on the crazy guy just walking, going, God, thank you for this sunset. You are amazing. I'm just talking because at times I need to hear the things that are true so I can put them into my heart. Or when I choose to tell somebody about something rather than complain about something, it not only does something in my heart, it does something for them. You don't find content people complaining, do you? This meal was too delicious, right? This chair is too comfortable. That road work is too efficient. Like, do you, do you find those people complaining? 
Contentment and complaining don't mix. Maybe for you, you need to start praying this week, God, thank you for, and then continue it day after day after day. He gets into verse 19, he says this, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's good to know that Paul says that our God will supply every want, isn't it? No, wait, is that what he said? He didn't say that. He said every need. And if I trust him, he knows what I need. What I need may not be what I want. There's a difference between that. Kind of leads us to our last C. Now, I'm sure there are many more. But the C is comparison. Isn't it, it amazing that we always compare with people who have more. We don't compare ourselves with people who have less. Imagine this. You're in an experiment. You're in a study where they gather a couple rooms, kids into a room. First kid comes in the room while the parents are waiting outside. They walk over to him, and they give him this small box. They say, you can open this up. As this kid opens it up, he starts to look in. He sees this toy, shiny toy, new toy, pulls it out. Smile comes across his face. He's delighted. He's excited. Starts playing with it. He says, thank you. Wasn't expecting anything when he walked in the room, and now he has a toy. But there's another kid in the room. And the, the scientist goes over, and they give a bigger box. And as this kid opens the toy, there's a bigger toy. Shinier toy, new toy, better toy. And instantly, what happens to the first kid? Oh, he was just grateful, was just satisfied, was just content. And as he walks out of the room and his parents asked how it went, what went on, he says, all I got was this dumb toy. It's interesting that it happens with kids, right? Because that never happens with adults. Comparison is the enemy of contentment. Comparison will rob us of our joy. You know why? Because enough will never be enough unless your enough is found in Christ alone. And if you don't anchor on that truth, you are going to live a disgruntled life, dissatisfied life, discontent life, and it will be miserable for you and everyone around you. You're going to be saying, if I could just have that different spouse, if I could just have that job, if I could just have that trip, if I could just have this, that, then I'll be happy. But the thing is, it will never bring you the contentment that you desire. That's why Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says this. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus is my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. The New Living Translation puts it this way. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Partnering with Jesus through this life, aligning our days with him in every circumstance, in every situation, leaning on him for strength starts to show us the delight that is found in him. Psalms 37 verse 4 says this, delight yourself, what? in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Won't give you all that your heart desires, but he'll put his desires in your heart. Let me tell you this, 
that's better than anything you could ever desire. C.S. Lewis said it this way. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. So I wonder as you sit here today wrestling with this point of contentment in your life, has God highlighted something that has been trying to rob you of contentment? Is it a circumstance you're in? Is there a situation that's weighing down on you? Is it a conflict that's going on? Is it that the control that you seek after? Is it the complacency that you've gotten yourself into? Is it your constant complaining? Is it comparison of everyone around us? Because God desires to do a change, a real change, a change that takes place in our heart. And when that happens, that's when we get to the heart of real change. God, thank you so much that you are a God that cares about us, a God that loves us, a God that wants us to experience infinite joy and delight in you, not in other things. God, be our first love. Help us draw close to you so we understand what it looks like to fall in love with you. So the things of earth go dim in comparison to you. God, our desire is that you would be first and foremost in our life so much that we would continue to align each and every part of our day to join with you, to live out words and actions and attitudes in the same way that you would. So we reflect you, and so we start to find the patterns in life that bring deep contentment in you in any circumstance. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.